this is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale, the nine-book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, D-E-B-B-I-M-A-C-K, Dot com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. Hi, I'm pleased to have with me today another lawyer turned writer, which in my book is always a great thing. <laughs> a member of the New York State Bar He's worked as both an assistant district attorney and a criminal defense attorney, not at the same time, of course. And he also practiced civil law, practices, I should say, civil law. He currently represents injured workers and volunteer firefighters, which is way cool in my book. Um, He has written and published two, two, two true crime books. His latest work is a crime fiction thriller. It's my great pleasure to have here today Richard T. Cahill. Thank you so much for being here today, Richard. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, Your first book was Hauptmann's Ladder. Is that the correct pronunciation? It is. Uh, Which was a detailed account of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Um, The very beginning of the book, you talk about what drew you into writing this book. Maybe you can do that, tell us a little about that as a teaser for the book, for readers. Sure. Well, when I was 18 years old, um, I was in my freshman English class, and the professor, Dr. Cotter, said that he wanted us to write a research paper. And so I thought, well, no problem. I had read some books about, uh, you know, the, the Lincoln assassination. I'd do something about that. But then, being a, a wise professor, he, he then announced that it had to be something that you've never read anything about or have never done any research on. So part of me, I have to be honest, said, well, maybe I'll just do it anyway. But then I thought, no, i got to follow the rules. So I went to the library, and I started looking around to see what I could find. And I found this small book, and it had a whole series of stories in it, stuff like, uh, did Jesse James die the way history records, you know, uh, you know, did Neil Armstrong really walk on the moon? You know, stuff like that. And one of them was, did Bruno Richard Hauptman kidnap and kill the Lindbergh baby? And as I read that particular article, I then remembered many years ago seeing an old TV show called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Hmm. And I re- all I remember was they, they did a, a show on it. And the only thing I can remember was there was a guy with a mustache who said that uh, it was a miscarriage of justice. That's really all I remembered. So I thought, this might be interesting. So I read... Uh, one book, uh, ironically, I later found out was, was written by the guy with the mustache. I didn't find it up for many years later that that's who it was. But um, And then I read two magazine articles, and I wrote this, what I thought was a wonderful paper, proclaiming that Halpin was a, was framed, didn't do it, and so forth. And I it came back, and I believe I got a B or a B plus, as memory serves me, and thought, geez, I should have gotten an A. Well, now in Looking back, seeing the paper, my lousy research and so forth, I should have got an F. So the professor was very kind in what he gave me. But from there, I, I read it. I saw another book not long after that on the case, and I read it. 
And that was one by Sir Ludovic Kennedy, which took the position that he didn't do it, but his was more reasonable and didn't say some of the outrageous things that Anthony Scaduto did. So, so I still maintain that Alvin didn't do it, but I, I just had, you know, different reasons why. And then I got another book from, uh, uh, from another perspective that said that he did do it. And I'm reading through this and I'm like, it was written by Jim Fisher called the Lindbergh case. And I'm reading, I'm like, boy, he makes a compelling case. So I decided I would take a look at the original source material just to see, you know, what really happened, say, you know, satiate my curiosity. Well, 20 years later, after you know, going through all this, I thought to myself, you know what, I've always wanted to write a book, and no human being should have to go through what I've just gone through. I'm going to write a book and answer the question. And so I wrote Houtman's Ladder, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, that's fascinating. Um, how many of hours of research did it require? I couldn't calculate it in hours. I can tell you that I started my research in well, 1989, and the book came out in 2014, and I had finished writing it. Well, I finished writing the first draft in 2012. Uh, no, strike that, the end of 2011. I had just finished the first draft, but it was very rough, and I had to work on it. And then in February of 2012, my father passed away, and I really, me and my dad were very close, and uh, I was completely devastated and I needed to throw myself into something just to, you know, to have something else to focus on because all I was thinking about was that. And I couldn't be my job as an attorney because that was something that, you know, dad and I were, you know, his father was an attorney. It was something that really made me think of him. So I thought, well, you know what, let me revise this book. That'll take me a long time. So I threw myself into that. And in just a few weeks, I had it revised. So I said, well, I'll do a, a, another revision. That took me two weeks. So I thought, well, let me start the publishing process. That'll take forever. And next thing I know, uh, by you know, then in June I got the letter saying they want they were willing to do it, and it went from there. So that should give you the time frame. This was a lot of research over a lot of years. Yes, I was going to say, uh, was any of it, was most of it secondary, or did you actually talk to people? Um, well, there was a lot of it that was secondary, but that turned out to be problematic because many of the secondary sources mm -hmm. cite things as truth that are not true. For example, um, a lot of the secondary sources say that a Daily News reporter named Cassidy completely made up something, that he planted evidence, but there's no evidence to support that he didn't. But it became it was like a rumor that was going around at the time, and some other some books uh, picked up on it and printed that, and next thing you know, when magazine articles come out, they cite those books as a source. So I went back to a lot of the primary materials. As far as talking with the people who were involved, um, most of them had already passed away by, the, by that time. And the few who were alive, um, a lot of them didn't want to talk to people because they had been uh, misused before where they'd be contacted and then misquoted. And then the, the two that I did not want to contact uh, well, Mrs. Lindbergh was still alive then, although she wasn't well, but I had no intention of contacting her or her family because her other children were not even alive when this happened, and they've been harassed many times over the years by people claiming to be their long-lost uh, brother that he, I, you know, they, and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be a burden to them, and they wouldn't really offer anything. And if you want the perspective of the Lindbergh children, there's a book written by Reeve Lindbergh where she makes reference to that, and it's a 
you know, and when you read that, if you still want to contact her to talk about it, I, th I think you have no heart because she basically tells a story how some uh, somebody came to the door once and the fa her father went and took care of it. The other person was uh, the son of Bruno Richard Hubman. He was still alive at the time, but he, he also didn't know anything about it. And you know, what you, the only thing you'd get for him would be something his mother told him. And, you know, mother had nothing to do with what happened, neither did he. So I just didn't see the need to bother them. So other than them, the only other person that was a juror who was down in Florida, um, but she was very old at the time, and then it was a man named Stockberger, but he didn't want to talk to anybody anymore. Um, you know, he would talk to Mark Falzini, who was the, uh, the uh, head archivist at the New Jersey uh, State Police Museum and Archives, which maintains all of the evidence, uh, the original evidence, and he would talk to him. He had a good relationship with him. So if you wanted to ask a question, you could go through him. But Mr. Stockberger referred to be left alone, and I wasn't going to violate his privacy. Mm -hmm. Well, it sure must have been tricky getting at the, the truth behind all of these rumors. So I really respect uh, that kind of um, attention to detail and, and the, the need to check your sources. Um, and you got a gold medal prize for the book from the yeah, True Crime Book of the Year. So that's awesome. Congratulations. That, well, thank you. That was, that was quite a thrill. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, now, your second book, Sidetracked, got an honorable mention in that contest in 2017. Mm -hmm. Now, I took a look at the description of the book, and to say that it's mind-blowing isn't saying enough. <laughs> It's Thank like you. the ultimate war story. <laughs> Can you uh, give uh, readers a little bit of an idea in your own words what the book is about? <laughs> sure. Uh, there was a murder that took place in the city of Kingston in 1988. Um, the victim was Annie Kithcart, who was a year ahead of me in high school. I knew her, not well, because she was a very popular kid and big surprise, I was a geek. So. But uh, she was always very nice to me. I mean, she, you know, the, the popular kids never would speak to the, you know, the unpopular kids. But unlike a lot of them, she wasn't, you know, unkind. She was pleasant. And uh, it was something that really rocked Kingston when it happened. And uh, what really made it worse was about nine months before that was the famous Tawana Brawley case down in Poughkeepsie. Uh, and as, as such, at the time this occurred, uh, the Kitkart murder, that racial tensions were really, really uh, uh, tense. And here, uh, when Annie was found, she was be found behind uh, Kingston Hospital, which in those days was a, a wooded area with old railroad, abandoned railroad tracks that went through it. And she was found, her body had been stripped and scrawled on her legs uh, with the letters uh, KKK. And there was a K on her stomach, but it was the KKK on her thighs that was really a, the, the big media mover, because as soon as that happened, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and his uh, supporters, including two prominent uh, individuals uh, immediately came to uh, got involved and two of them came to Kingston and you know it turned into a real I hate to call it a circus but it really was I mean the reverend made a comment that was picked up by one of the papers where he he said that, that you know that, that if the district attorney heard something moving in a tree it wasn't a cat it was going to be him the idea being that he was watching him and so forth you know and you know a lot of outrageous comments and so forth because uh, what happened thereafter was uh, Annie Kithcart was uh, of, of mixed race. Her mother uh, was, was Caucasian, was white, and her father was African-American. So um, initially, of course, then you see the KKK with, you know, with some of, of, of that race. That immediately is going to 
inflamed tensions. And then they arrested uh, a man named Kiernan uh, for engaging in illicit activities with the body, we'll say. It's a little, it's more details given in the book, but I don't know the age range of who's listening to your podcast, mm-hmm. so I don't want to go into too much detail. But suffice it to say, uh, if you read the book, there's a comment that the guy makes that's incredible. But regardless, um, if you, you're laughing, I guess you read it and know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, he was arrested for that. And so Sharpton and his supporters began to say that this guy was a scapegoat and they were covering it up. At one point, uh, one of his supporters made a comment that would lead one to believe they were accusing the police. Uh, they never actually directly said that, but it was it was some people thought that's what they meant. Um, and eventually they made an arrest. They actually arrested a guy who did it, a man named Jeff Dawson, who was also African-American. So the racial part of it appeared not to be uh, it really wasn't the motive or anything. And at that point, uh, Mr. Sharkin left Kingston and to the best of my knowledge has never returned. So it was a really wild, I mean, this one, he, you know, the, the, the few weeks before the arrest, it was really, really tense in the city of Kingston. And, uh, it, you know, having grown up there and lived there, it was something to remember. Um, there's a mention in there of Interpol and the CIA, I think. Well, the, Karen, the man they arrested for doing improper things with the body, he was not mentally stable. He had some serious mental issues, and he used to be he used to go around claiming that he was a member of he was a member of Interpol. He was a member of the CIA. In fact, he made comments that he was undercover at the time that he was arrested, and then he said one thing about I guess I went too far. I let my hair grow too long, and you know he just he had serious mental issues, and uh, so he made a lot of you know wild statements and he became very much a puppet being used uh in through this whole thing because you know initially he was very you know he admitted what he did he was very sorry and so forth and then uh later he began to say he was a scapegoat and he was being set up and so forth and uh, i actually was through my research able to come to a definitive conclusion as to whether he was guilty or not but for that you're gonna have to get the book and read it but i was able to pretty much prove uh, his guilt or innocence. And I, I can't say why, one, because I want you to buy the book, and two, because it would require me to be a little uh, more descriptive of what he did than I'm comfortable doing without knowing if children are listening. No problem. No problem whatsoever. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. Um, well, now, I think so, but I'm a little biased. Well, just a little, <laughs> but that's okay. That's understandable. Um, your third book, Aftermath, The Aftermath, has been mm-hmm. described as a crime fiction thriller in the mold of Michael Connolly, but with a faster pace similar to Stuart Woods. Uh, well, that's my description. Um, okay. Well, that it has not yet been published. Uh, that description comes from uh, the uh, the letter that I've been sending around trying to get it published. I've had some interest, and hopefully, will be published. Basically, it uh, I've always wanted to write something in fiction, and uh, this is a story that I. I I enjoyed writing this a lot. It was fun. Um, it's written mostly in the first person, which I've always wanted to do, but there are a few scenes where it, it goes to the perspective of a killer, and those perspective, uh, those parts of the book, I should say, it's written in the third person. And um, I, I'm, I'm biased, but I thought I, when I got to the third person, I was surprised how creepy it came out. <laughs> you know, I'd never written that type of stuff before. I was always very, you know, matter of fact in my writing and so forth. And so this was, uh, you know, an attempt to branch out. I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, the manuscript is done, it's copied, it's all ready to roll. I'm just hoping that, 
you know, I'm waiting. I got a few agents I'm waiting to hear back from. I'm hoping that uh, we're going to get that out in the near future. But uh, I'm looking forward to it because my hope is if that if it gets out and it's people like it, uh, to be able to make a series about it. It's. Uh, I mean, what, what I what I can say is basically the gist of it is that uh, um, the main character, of course, is Con- a guy named Connor Phelan, and basically he. He was on top of the world. He had the job he always wanted. He wanted to be a prosecutor. He he was the first assistant, uh, you know, basically the or chief assistant, it's sometimes called. And he was seen to be the next DA, you know, because it was a powerful guy who was the county DA, and he he was looking to, you know, he had, he he was married to another assistant DA in the office, and they were expecting their first son. And then tragedy struck out of nowhere, and his wife and child, an unborn child, uh, died, and he could not continue at the time as a prosecutor. He basically shut down and he took a job down in New York City um, where he would commute from uh, Rockfield, New York, which doesn't exist. It's just a place I made up, but it's the idea that where it would be is somewhere near near the area of what is now known, what's called Green County. It fits in somewhere in that area. But, um, and he, so the, in the story, he commuted down to Amtrak and was very good at what he did. He was starting to do personal injury work and he made a lot of money, but he was just hiding from, um, you know, hiding from the, from his pain and so forth. And as the book progresses, he's, you know, the, the, I, I can't go into too much to reboot, but basically there's a, there's the person that he's going to be up against who's a killer had a similar past, uh, who, uh, who he, this, the killer lost his family in, in a similar way, a little more horrible, but, uh, and he, lost his mind and turned to murder as a way to, in his demented mind, to purge his pain. And it's basically, it's kind of a story how two people with similar stories went totally different ways. And now in the aftermath, the two of them are trying to get back to where they think they need to be. And inevitably, the two of them are have to clash and only one can survive it. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought it came out pretty good. But I, like I said, I'm biased. But hopefully when it comes out, it'll it'll be well received. And then I can write a sequel because <laughs> it was a lot of fun to write that. It really was. I was going to say the fact that you can um, use narrative structure in the way that you did in a kind of not, not usual way or slightly different way than just your straightforward first person or third person shows that you're a gifted storyteller. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. I didn't know if I could do it. I'd never tried it before, but it was fun. Yeah, it is actually to to do that, to play with perspectives that way. And my guess is that your experience as a trial lawyer has helped you in terms of storytelling. That's one of the things I noticed you were, um, you uh, do mentoring for high schools. I'd done that back when I was practicing law. I did that once. It was just the most wonderful experience. But one of the things I advised uh, a group that I recently did mock trial type thing you know I was a judge in a mock Mm -hmm. trial and um, one of the things I advised them was learn about storytelling because it will help you when you're trying Mm -hmm. to explain your side of the case sure sure it's uh it was writing in this way was different it was different even than that in that well first off with a trial you have to state of the story that's presented to you, whereas with this, I can change the stories I want to because I'm making it all up. But um, but it was, uh, you know, it was interesting. I took, 
some of the characters had, were based at least in part on some people that I know and I added to that, you know, and stuff. And it was, it was fun to put them together. And, uh, you know, the weird thing was that my favorite character ended up not even being the lead character. It was a, it was uh, another character named Casey Franklin, who I think, I really think could be the one that becomes the more popular if, if I'm successful in getting this out there, because, uh, she's just a, a really, a really fun character, uh, that I think everybody will know somebody like this character. And it, uh, you know, it was, it was just a, it was just a pleasure to write. I mean, you know, the other two was, were tremendous amounts of work and it didn't, I didn't, it doesn't mean I didn't work on this newest one, but this was the most fun to write of them all. The others was, you know, uh, it was really hard work and you want to be so careful because it's true crime. You want to make sure every, you don't make a mistake and you're being very careful. But th with the fiction one, it was so much fun to do. I, I really enjoyed it. It's it was, great it was, when you can just make it up, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're not you're not bound by the darn truth, you know. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. It was fun. It was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, it was. Uh, and, and and I took some experiences of myself in my career of you know odd trials or things, and I twisted them a little bit, and you know, and had some fun with it. And uh, you know, I, you know, the names are changed to protect the innocent, as they say. But it was, uh, you know, that there were some things that were based on. Uh, the actual experiences I had or attorneys that I know had. And uh, because every attorney, and I'm sure you're the same, you have the, you have the war stories. Everybody talks about them in the attorney's room in court, Exactly. And, you know, and of course they're never, by the time the stories, you know, uh, you know, they're <laughs> like five or six years old, they've become more grandiose. And, you know, the, the basic part is true, but as it goes along, you know, you're, it becomes more, you know, this. You know, whereas the beginning, the judge was grumpy. By the by, the end of it, the judge was so terrible he was out to get me. But I, still, you know, you're an attorney, <laughs> you understand. You know, and you do that, and then you can have fun with it and make it even more fantastic as part of fiction. Yeah, what a blast! I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> oh well, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I hope that. Uh, Hope everybody within the sound of my voice runs out and buys 10 copies of each book. <laughs> Absolutely. You do that right no, I now. Thank you for the, I thank you for the opportunity. I, 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 I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being here. And um, I enjoyed talking to you. With that, I will just conclude by saying that the Crime Cafe nine book set and short story anthology are available for sale from all online retailers. And if you'd like to become a patron at any level on Patreon for the podcast, you'll get copies of those books. So not to mention early access to the podcast. That's another thing. So every other Sunday, it's on my blog, along with the show notes which is to say the full transcript for your reading pleasure. Just go to debbymack.com to check it out. And with that, I'll just say that our next guest will be Les Abend or Abend. I'm not sure which. I'll have to find out. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, happy reading.